American politics has reached a moment of existential uncertainty, with problems bigger than any one administration. My name is James Wallner, and I host the podcast Politics in Question with Lee Drutman and Julia Azari. On our show, we take a step back and discuss how our political institutions are failing us, ideas for fixing them, and what American politics could look like if citizens questioned everything. You can find our show on Spotify, Apple, and Stitcher, and more information at our website, Politics in Question. Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists, and so many more people, honestly, (laughs) to learn more about what civic and political engagement means to them, and to learn a little bit more about how they're involved in their communities. If you want to be involved in the podcast and get behind-the-scenes content about each episode, head on over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. Yeah, you can. And today we are once again talking with, with one of those youths, those disengaged youths. Yes, it's a, th- it's a theme that runs through our <laughs> we po- just... unintentional theme. That should be a new series, the, the disengaged youths who aren't disengaged <laughs> at all. We're not at all disengaged. This is, I think, um, a great... Uh, also a former student, but a, a really a great conversation with somebody who um, uh, really just runs with whatever issue that kind of confronts uh, them when they're in a space of, I can't let this stand. I think, so I relate to kind of like, can jump off on that. One of the things about this episode that I really love in particular is seeing kind of the, I don't know, maybe like the thread of like, starting with a very personal topic, something like very personally motivated an issue and like running with it. And then, and then becoming involved in kind of broader electoral politics, right? So the issue then moves into this different space of electoral politics. And then, and then getting into the weeds of the stuff that we love <laughs> of like, you know, the not so sexy part of government and like these weird kind of machinations that allow government to, 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 to work. And like that thread that kind of um, moves through that in terms of all the different ways that you can be involved and make sense of um, civic and political spaces. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun. So uh, I think everybody will enjoy our guest today. Yeah. So today we have with us Madison Newingham. Madison Newingham is a campaign finance expert for Ohio Democrats. She works for a Northeast Ohio fundraising firm that runs operations for Senator Sherrod Brown, U.S. Congressman Tim Ryan, the House Ohio House Democratic Caucus, Ohio House Minority Leader Amelia Sykes, former U.S. District Attorney and Attorney General candidate Stephen Dettelbach, and former state legislator and Portage County Commissioner Kathleen Clyde. She also operates uh, Senator Brown's state and local endorsement pack. Madison graduated summa cum laude from Kent State University with degrees in political science and history. So 
special shout out, and is currently a Juris Doctorate and Public Administration graduate student at Cleveland Marshall College of Law at Cleveland State University. She has very little free time, <laughs> but that time is used to run and support local candidates in Portage, Summit, Medina, and Cuyahoga counties. Madison also organizes around labor, mental health, and reproductive justice issues. She resides in Cuyahoga Falls. So joining us today is Madison Newingham, Maddie, who I, I'm going to call you Maddie because, uh, full disclosure, Maddie's a former student, and uh, we are really excited to have you with us today. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. So could you tell us, uh, you know, Ashley's read your bio and everything, but we would like to hear from you because we find that people's uh, self-told stories often kind of reveal a little bit more (laughs) about their journey to how they got to where they are and who they are. So could you tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I currently... There's not a good title for me. I have, I'm the everything person (laughs) in Ohio politics. So that's how I start my story most of the time. And I know that wasn't in my bio. (laughs) I try not to use the word fixer because it sounds like something's broken, but uh, think about the, you know, the real life Olivia Pope. That is what I aspire to be. Yeah. So I work in Ohio politics for a lot of Democrats. I I work primarily for Sherrod Brown. So the work that I do is uh, campaign finance. So I raise the resources he needs to be successful in his reelection. $30 million is just too much to raise in two years. (laughs) So senators really have no time off and neither do I. (laughs) But in addition to that, I actually work for a campaign finance firm. So Um, When he's not in cycle, we work for other clients. Right now, we're working for U.S. Congressman Tim Ryan, who's running for Senate right now. That campaign's picking up. It's really exciting. And I I really like the pro-labor messaging that, um, you know, our our candidates and public officials have been focusing on. So I'm excited about that work. And I also do fundraising for the Ohio House Democratic Caucus. And in particular, um, I work with uh, leader Amelia Sykes. I feel like I'm missing other things. I work with so many people. (laughs) Aside from the work I do with my firm, I I do a ton of local uh, organizing. It's really important to me. Honestly, my experience at at Kent made me get involved in local politics. I'm not even from Portage County. I'm from Summit County. But just getting involved with Democrats there, you know, made me realize how quick you can get progress at the local level. So that's kind of how I came into being and into this work. But uh, right now I'm working for, on the local level, I live in Cuyahoga Falls, so I'm helping our city council members up for re-election. And there's um, the Stone Municipal Clerk of Courts, Amber Zibertowski. Um, she oversees 16 communities. I know you're in Hudson, Casey, so she <laughs> she's in your, your her jurisdiction, rather. So that's a little bit about me. Um, now, I have, a, I have a brief follow-up because I realized yeah. we didn't ask about it. It wasn't mentioned here, and it's not in your bio either, but uh, public service runs in your blood, right, in your DNA. Oh, yeah, it does, actually. And it's really funny because uh, – so 
my dad has been a public servant his whole life. He's He actually started out as a volunteer firefighter and, you know, he's promoted to lieutenant. Then he <laughs> retired and then he decided to go back to work. So now he's the fire chief at the Richfield Fire Department, and he's been leading their efforts throughout the pandemic. And, you know, we agree on nothing. He's a he's a very proud Republican. But it, when, when it comes to this local stuff, it's very easy to agree on public safety. And, you know, he takes the pandemic mostly seriously. <laughs> um, you know, we're getting lax on the masks now, but he is vaccinated. <laughs> um yeah. So, and he also was elected to school board, which, you know, again, he was elected. It's a nonpartisan position, but, you know, he ran as a Republican. And honestly, there's a lot we agree on at that level because, you know, his, he just felt like the, the things that he needed to be done for students weren't happening. And honestly, the administration wasn't listening to him and he decided to run. Like he had no idea. I mean, he, didn't pay to po- pay attention to politics. So, you know, I really appreciate that. And I, I really learned a lot from him despite our differences. I love that because on the Growing Democracy podcast, we're, we're nonpartisan, but we're talking with people who have partisan identities, right? So you work with Democrats and you, you know, are, are working with Democrats, but a recognition that like, People who are Democrats also have family members and friends and yeah. people in their community that are not Democrats, right? Like in that, that that's a that's an interesting and complex place to be, um, and to both engage in public service and and I don't know if I'm hearing you correctly, so please correct me if I'm wrong. That there, the motivation is really similar, right? Like wanting to do something for the community that you value. You just might have slightly different approaches yeah. to what that looks like. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, you're definitely not misquoting me. That's right. I mean, we we think we're doing the best thing for the most people, and we come at our work from our experiences. <laughs> my my dad just has different experiences. I should yeah. also add that I'm I'm trying to convince my mom to run for Bath Township trustee. Um, she was a lifelong Republican, and then. Um, as I came into this work, she realized I'm a feminist. And I'm like, well, mom, you're a woman. <laughs> um, and now she's uh, mostly a Democrat. She'll still, she'll split her ticket sometimes, but, you know, by no means was she voting for Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, anyways, just to share, maybe a little bit oversharing, I have a, I have an interesting family story that has some interesting parallels to what you're describing. <laughs> Not the commitment to public service quite in the same way. Not elected positions, but um, in terms of, of partisanship and commitments and, and the way we engage in philanthropic spaces. But my, I do have a question for you, though, as opposed to okay. <laughs> staying focused on that. <laughs> so my question is really, I mean, like you're doing a ton of things, right? So you're working in a lo- with different elected officials, people running for office, but you're also you're also an organizer, right? In your own right, and you know, can you tell us a little bit about you know, kind of how you came to that? Like how, like what, what was that kind of aside from family and motivation? Yeah, and your blood. <laughs> but like, what were some of those like inspiring moments that like you were like, this is my life. This is this is the work that I'll do. Yeah, you know, I think I forgot to add that I'm still a student, <laughs> which has always been a big part of of the organizing I do because I'm I'm trying to organize my peers and I'm still trying to do that even in the legal community, which is admittedly really difficult compared to undergrad. 
getting back to the the core of the question, honestly, I, I just I started to have political thoughts. I was as I was growing up. I grew up in um, a pretty rural white community. Frankly, my biological father would say things that are racist, and I didn't really know what the word racism was at the time, but I would acknowledge that it was a racist thought and, you know, think, wow, I don't want to be like that. Uh, I don't want to live with that kind of hate towards people I don't even know. These people are strangers. So I've always kind of had those thoughts, but really in high school was when I started to get political. I was taking, you know, AP courses, especially the AP sciences, which just lacked other women and like, I'm not even in the sciences now. I'm in political science and, like, the legal field. I'm, I'm not an engineer. But I felt enraged that my, like, there wasn't space for me. My teachers didn't make space for me. They didn't call on me. And they would expect me to get the answers wrong. And don't get me wrong. Like, I got a lot of answers wrong. But <laughs> I was, you know, I was upset that the space you know, wasn't conducive to my learning and I was there to learn. So I I'd started organizing at that point. You know, I think the 2016 primaries had started. And so there was just a lot to do. I mean, there's a lot in a presidential year. I think you just learn a lot about politics naturally, given um, how much it's in the news and going to college during a presidential uh, year made it really easy to get plugged in, I think. Now, I mean, when you were uh, on campus at Kent State University, I know you were involved in just like a, a, a wide variety of activities. You elect her. Uh, you worked hard to get feminine hygiene products put into bathrooms. You were also really vocal about your experience with sexual assault and engaged in a great deal of activism around that topic. What kind of motivated you to that activism? And, uh, you know, in terms of activism around sexual assault, was it, in fact, your, you know, your own prior experience, your experience that motivated that? Or was there this something that you were kind of already um, really invested in before? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly an issue that I was aware of. I was very passionate about women's issues. I, you know, applying to college, you just see the disparity in applications so I do think that there there is a part of me that, you know, would have been passionate about this. I don't think I would have made it my issue, though, um, until I actually lived it. And that's really what triggered a lot of the work that I did. Um, throughout college, I organized a lot with Planned Parenthood. I sat on a couple of their national boards. Um, I was on a public health board. Um, so we were just trying to figure out how to educate young folks, especially those who are from communities who are not getting the education they deserve. I also sat on a public affairs board. So I just learned a lot about my body, my rights, consent, and I felt like I needed to share it with other people. It took me, it honestly took me a while to acknowledge that what I had gone through was rape and to like come to calling it that. And now I go out of my way to call it rape when I do this organizing because I'm just tired of other people. I'm tired of feel like needing to comfort other people when what happened was what happened to me. Um, and I want to remind folks that there's there's not this 
there's not as much gray area as we think when it comes to sex. There's, there's sex and there's rape and that's it. Like, especially, and when, when I talk about this, I try to explain it in, in ways that people can understand. A lot of people in relationships are like, well, I couldn't possibly be raping my partner. And frankly, it happens all the time. There are men and young men in college who are very, you know, sexually active and frankly, women are too, but like men just haven't been taught boundaries. And so, you know, it's just not okay to tell your partner that they need to have sex with you more because you want that. I mean, that's not consensual sex. You know, sleeping with someone who's drunk is not consensual sex. Like there are, there are clear lines. uh, (laughs) And I, I try to, you know, tell people what those are because, it's important education and Ohio doesn't have any mandated sexual education. And frankly, what's taught is all abstinence. So I don't know. Yeah. My experience uh, really brought me to this like public health, public safety and um, like sexual assault awareness driven organizing. So in terms of the the organizing that you did uh, on campus, what was your experience like there? Would you say that there was a particular topic that got a lot more uh, support, whether that was from the mm. student body uh, or the faculty or, or the or the administration in general? Yeah, so a lot of the work that I did was admittedly well-received. Like, things around diversity were that I didn't have that much pushback, which was good because I was frankly in a pretty conservative group of student government folks. I mean, to be able to be in the position of being in student government, you have to either possess some privilege or work really hard like I did. And there just wasn't an in-between. So I, I just felt like everything was a battle and convincing people kind of behind the scenes before the vote. I, I literally was whipping votes, um, so that I wouldn't face, like, public pushback on things that just didn't deserve it, like diversity issues. Um, I will say the one one issue in particular that I think is a a big issue at Kent still and is something they're going to need to reckon with at some point, and it's the acceptance of the trans community on campus. We have this LGBTQ center, but when I, you know, asked to put hygiene products in every bathroom, I I was very clear about why. There are folks that we can't force them to come out. It's not our place. And they shouldn't have to, you know, like they shouldn't either, their options are don't have this product you need or go to the bathroom that, I mean, it's just a unfair options, um, the, the bathroom that doesn't identify with your identity. Um, and, and the university would not ultimately put our free menstrual product dispensers in any of the men's restrooms. It, we, we didn't win that fight. So I, I needed something though. Like I, I just felt like that was not acceptable. So there are universal restrooms that, that have the at least access to free menstrual products. But even in getting women access to menstrual products, it's like, well, okay, trans folks, you have one bathroom to use. I mean, it's, who's going to walk across campus a mile for a tampon? It's just ridiculous. And I'm not afraid to say these things out loud. I think, frankly, people need to hear it. Because the push, the community pushback is not fair. Students are paying tuition dollars. They're living their lives in the community. They're community members themselves. And 
I, I just don't think we need to care about unequal and unwelcoming rhetoric. Where, where do you feel uh, that the pushback was of that? Because I, I recall at the time you, we were actually yeah. in my class and we had male students in that class that ended up sneaking menstrual products into male bathrooms for us. Oh yeah. Um, oh my gosh. I remember that. That was such a good memory. Uh, yes. So, 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 so what, what was that pushback stemming from? Do you think? Yeah. So I met with, this was all within like the, you know, the institution that deals with student affairs. So mm-hmm. I don't know if it's appropriate for me to out people directly. So I'll just try to, you know, refer to the, the, I guess, I guess I'm curious, is it, was this more a reflection of that there was a community response that, that no community response of? at all. So literally none. to the university. It was entirely manufactured. I mean, they made it up. There was no, frankly, even the conservative folks who were on student government weren't even pushing back on this because um, young conservatives are pretty libertarian and um, they have friends who are trans or friends who are gay and you know, they might not understand it, but they just want people to live their lives. And so this was an issue that we could agree on whether or not they come at it from the right humanistic reasons. Yeah, it was entirely manufactured by the university. And frankly, it was, it was even women who were, you know, giving me problems with this. And I, I found that to be pretty bizarre. You know, I just, I feel like we, we fight so hard for things and we're not, tr- we have to lift others up with us. The evidence was clear. I, I came in with so much research. I brought a PowerPoint because of course I did. We didn't make that much movement. And actually um, we, we had some students, um, some male students, like you mentioned, taking them into male restrooms and the, the university asked janitors to remove all of them. And they even removed the ones that I put in women's restrooms before we um, were able to work with Aunt Flo and fully fund the, the menstrual product. The period project is what I coined it. Um, I, I had just done this like, you know, take, give a tampon, take a tampon type of you know, box thing. And we just put them in bathrooms. And it was this like scrappy grassroots effort of folks just caring for each other. And it was really sweet. And I mean, to tell the janitors to just throw those products in the trash, they weren't even donated. Like they could have given them to the women's center. Like I just was so frustrated with how that was handled. And, you know, we're still at that point where it's, you know, it's, it's other students fight now, but I know that they're still having to push. So. So I know we weren't going to spend all our time talking about this, but I have another follow-up question because I think these stories of your time at Kent State, maybe it's because, you know, I'm a faculty member at Kent State, so it resonates with me. I don't know, whatever. But I, it's, it's really powerful to hear your story of of organizing while on campus. And it's a conversation I've been having with a lot of different people. I teach the community organizing class. So I talk with students all the time that especially for youth organizer, I'm going to say youth and I mean this very broadly. (laughs) So college is included in my youth. The young Democrats uh, cutoff is like 40. So. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, So I'm still, no, I'm kidding. I'm just saying, I'm not trying to be offensive, but you could call yourself a youth. I'm a, I'm if a you're youth. under 40. <laughs> <laughs> I have a few months left. Um, so anyway, sorry. 
But one of the things that we talk about is this, it takes a lot of kind of, maybe I'll say, you know, courage um, and bravery to do the work you were doing, right? You're an individual student working with a collective of people for sure, but taking on a big institution on a topic that you were really passionate about, but wasn't getting like a ton of press, right? Where you couldn't like lean on the newspaper and be like, see, it's important. How do you and that people like to talk about, right? Right. Like it makes people really uncomfortable. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So one, how do you stay motivated in that space? And two, how do you then pass it off to the next group? Right. Like what is that that because as it's a it's a space that um youth organizers often struggle with, right? Like how do you pass the mantle because age is the often a democratic uh, a demographic characteristic that that shapes that space. Yeah, so I I've been mature for a long time. It feels, you know, it feels weird to call myself mature. Usually it's a compliment from someone else, but at any rate, um, you know, I know that age can it is subjective. I mean, you have your hard age, but maturity is subjective rather. And so, you know, I work with adults all the time who I'm like, I could do their job better. And I'm 24. <laughs> um, and that includes elected officials uh, who I work with now. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's a matter of the work you put into it and the, the passion you have. Um, frankly, I'm terrified all the time to you know, do the fights that I do. I'm afraid to pick up the microphone. I'm even afraid to speak on podcasts until, you know, I get into it. Like it's, it's just a little nervous until you, you start whatever it is you're doing. But, um, at the end of the day, I just care so much. And I know if I don't say something, then there's no guarantee someone else will. And like, I, I need to make sure that efforts continue, you know, and you learn the hard way too, that, um, like, I don't need to be the savior for every organization. Um, and there are things you can let go and frankly, things that deserve to die. Um, there are student organizations that deserve not to continue. Um, and, and sometimes you should let that happen, but when you need to pass the torch and like I needed to in these situations, I worked really hard to network with students who I knew also cared about these things. And, you know, I felt like I tried to bring other women up with me. Um, So usually like women of color are just not in the spaces that I, you know, was elected to or whatever. They're like not in student government, or if they are there in smaller numbers. And frankly, the university doesn't go out of its way to reach out to these communities. So like, I'm one person, but I at least try extending the hand. And I, I think that's been helpful in making sure you, these things continue. And, and what is also very critical is to lean on faculty who are, you know, are folks who will be there um, and and can help the continuity. I definitely relied on Dr. Parjakli a lot. She was our Planned Parenthood advisor and she was able to kind of check in with the group, you know, as there are leadership struggles um, and things like that that you also have to work through. But yeah, I, I think it's just a lot, a lot of this work is, uh, like opposite action, which is a term that I learned in therapy. It's it's literally forcing yourself to do the thing that terrifies you 
And another way to put it uh, that that my sibling and I joke is to have the unearned confidence of a white man. <laughs> um, I just think we deserve that. Like <laughs> it is our time. <laughs> a, a mediocre white man. <laughs> yes. yes, yes. I do get that mentor. Like I've had that. I've had mentors in my space say the same. Whereas every time you're nervous, just like. Think about what yeah, right you know, in my in my bio, I think I wrote that I am a campaign finance finance expert, and I even looked at the word expert, and I was like, I don't, that feels weird. <laughs> but then I think about the work that I do, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I guess that that works. I'm an expert. <laughs> like yeah. I can't even validate, you know, my myself and the work that I do. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot, but still focus on. Um, on your expertise. On your expertise. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, so you're currently a law student at Cleveland State University, and it, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I heard that you just passed a legal ethics defense. I, I'm not. I, I'm of course not a legal scholar or a <laughs> someone who studies the law in that particular way. Um, so I could be getting this wrong. But what does that mean? Like, could you tell us yeah. a little bit about what that means? Yeah, so the law is very interesting because you don't pick a specialty and like get that specific degree or that specific specialization. You are you are a generalist and you become a specialist by the work and research that you do. So, admittedly, I need to pass the bar before I I do any of this work. <laughs> uh, so, full disclosure there, but I have a lot of good things to say once I'm a lawyer which I'll, I'll share some of the research now because it's, it's really interesting and it's, it's work that like, I, I know that I'm going to do this after law school now. Um, so my, my legal defense was on municipal governments um, and their local ethics. And my conclusion was really that we don't have any here, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I pieced together there, there are some municipalities that do have ethics laws and, you know, while that could be improved, there there's certainly places to start um, without needing to reinvent the wheel. And like we need to remind ourselves that elected officials are often, you know, part-time non-expert individuals elected to office um, who, m- unless they're incumbents, have literally no experience and no idea what they're going to do. And just with the world that we're in and with short election cycles, um, it's hard to get work done and it's hard to pull democracy together by the threads. But really what we need to do is encourage municipalities to pass charters so that they can, you know, pass their own ethics laws and really keep track of, like a lot of municipalities have varying levels of corruption. Some are way worse than others. So, you know, some municipalities don't need quite the, the same oversight as others or, you know, based on their size, you know, they can really personalize their, their ethics and trans, trans, you know, oversight laws, I guess. But other things that fall into this are like campaign finance laws and term limits and um, like conflict of interest laws, diligency requirements, you know, public servants have, a really tough job and very little guidance by the state or their municipal charters. And then the other part of this research was um, county governments. So most counties don't have their own charters. Only two of 88 in Ohio do. And one of those resulted from like 
one of the worst ethics scandals in the state. <laughs> um, so it, I, I think it is really important for county governments to pass their charters. That way they are in charge of their own regulation. And voters are you know, better able to hold their public servants accountable, especially when they're um, elected. And sometimes that leads to, you know, silly political fights. But in the like idealistic republic, Republican sense in, in terms of government, Republican government, um, you know, it's it's really good for us to have that oversight because you can kick them out. <laughs> and we need to kick out a lot of people at the state level. Actually, what inspired this research was uh, the largest scandal in Ohio history. Uh, former um, former Speaker of the House Larry Householder's largest bribery scheme in history was just massive, and I mean, at every level of the government, someone was was complicit, and frankly, campaign staffers as well. Um, so you just see how deeply threaded you know, the corruption goes. And if you do not have local and state oversight, like there is at the national level, then you'll just keep seeing it over again. I mean, there's a reason that you don't hear these stories about like Elizabeth Warren or Sherrod Brown. They just can't, I mean, not that they would do these things, but they can't get away with some of the behavior that state actors get away with because it's legal. (laughs) I mean, a lot of the unethical things they do are just legal. So I absolutely love this conversation because I do some work around city charters. I just wrote a paper about city charters, but really quick, because I feel like in some ways it's a little bit of a jargony term and most people don't have any idea what we're talking about when we talk about city charters, municipal charters, county charters. What is a charter? Ah, yeah, this is, this is a, this is a good flag. I'm stuck in law school legalese and frankly, political legalese. So a charter is like your local constitution. It just sets the rules and you know, that's, that's all it is. Um, sometimes they're really short (laughs) and that might be a warning sign. Some of the municipal charters I looked at that were short, I was like, wow, we can add a lot of laws (laughs) that would improve improve our lives tomorrow you know local ethics local laws and and really state government too um you know things can happen really really quickly um depending on the issue you know that said we've had an unconstitutional state education system for decades so (laughs) it also can go very slow Right, right. And it just is a quick pitch because this is Growing Democracy podcast. Local governments that do have charters, they review them and they're supposed to be participatory, right? Where people are informing what that charter looks like and the the rules that are governing your the, the, the space that you live. Yeah, I actually, you know, I should, I should call out a good charter in in particular, and it's probably not surprising that this is the municipality, but Lakewood's charter is actually very good. Um, It has a specific, it it actually does have like ethics laws written, an ethics code written into it. Um, And most, most municipalities, if they have like an ethics code, it's really not called that. It's just like 
pieces and parts of things that resemble good ethics and good government. Um, and they actually require their public servants to undergo particular training. And, and it's just, you know, I think that, I think it's necessary. You know, we're, we're seeing, we've seen enough examples of corrupt actors getting into power and abusing that power to know that, like, we need these safeguards. Okay, so now I've, I have a small pivot, but, but kind of back to uh, the, the theme of this series, because we're in series two, which is civic and political engagement. And, you know, I, I love the fact that you looked up all the charters and looked at, you know, ethics laws <laughs> and how they're applied in there. But I would say that the average person out there, one, may not even know what that is, two, yeah. might not even know where to find it. So for kind of like your, our average engaged, you know, population, populace, what, from your perspective, what does that kind of look like? If someone is just average, you know, Joe and Jane on the street, what does that look like to be, you know, uh, civically and politically engaged? Yeah, so the average person should never even have to look at a municipal charter unless they want to. So I really think that the the basic engagement that we need to get better at before we can really do anything else successfully is voting. Um, as as you both know, on a good year, in a presidential year, um, at best, we get 50% of the population to vote. And that's not even counting um, the drop-off down ballot, which is very significant and frankly terrifying. Um, I mean, most you know, I don't want to say most people because I'm not referencing statistics, but a lot of people just skip the judges because they don't know them and there's not a party next to them. Um, So we need to make our political process more accessible. And I think that's a big key to getting people involved because it's it's not that people don't care. It's that it's so hard to really get engaged and to, to exercise your vote. I mean, I think about, you know, a, a single mother doesn't, who's working two or three jobs is not able to wait eight hours in line to cast their vote. Like, and they definitely don't have time to go to political clubs or, you know, to listen to our podcast. Like, they're just not in a position um, to engage like that. So we need to really remedy a lot of the things that, you know, put that mother in a position where she can't engage. I mean, voting should not be so hard. It shouldn't. Be, you shouldn't have to wait hours and hours to vote. Um, and right now, we know that the Republican Party has become kind of this one-issue party of just making voting impossible <laughs> and ending early voting everywhere and absentee voting. And maybe I should explain some of those terms to make our lives easier because you know, a lot of people don't have a fancy nine to five job and voting isn't a federal holiday. To be able to vote early, um, your your government has to let you. And you can either do it in person um, by a Dropbox or absentee, but some states require reasons or they require license, um, license requirements or IDs, um, and those cost money. And that gets in the way of people casting their vote. I mean, that's the most simple way to get people engaged. We just, we need to make it easy for them to vote. And being that that is a right you know, explicitly in the Constitution. Um, It really is one of the things that mind boggles me um, that conservatives make difficult. Um, 
you know, it's not like we want fraud. We know there's not this massive voter fraud. Um, so let's just get the votes counted. If you can't win an election fairly, don't run, change your platform, do something differently because you're the problem, not the voters. <laughs> I will say, and this is just an aside, I find it very interesting that in many states it's harder to vote than it is to buy a gun. Uh, and, you yeah. know, these are both rights that are, you know, ostensibly laid out for us. Uh, and and yet this this ability to check a box is. Uh, well, is so and I'll terrible. add there's there's nothing about regulating the right to vote. <laughs> yet there's something explicitly in the Second Amendment regulating or, or giving us permission to regulate gun ownership rights. So, I mean, that's very. Very problematic on its face. But what you're, I mean, in so many ways, what you're talking about, like, just to go back to the question, because I feel like we could go down, the three of us could go down a rabbit hole of talking about this topic in particular, but like to bring us back a little bit momentarily, like when you're talking about like what it means to to have a deeply engaged populace, like, and to be civically and politically engaged. I mean, one of the things I'm hearing you is like, we need to do the work to make sure that people can show up, right? Like yeah. so much, and we, we, Casey and I go back and forth quite often is, you know, we want to motivate the individual, but also recognize that we haven't done the work. Not we, I'm using a very collective we. We haven't done the work mm-hmm. institutionally to make that easy or that people want to, right? <laughs> and so I think that, you know, that that's one of the things I'm hearing you say is that if you want people to show up, then you need to do the work to create a space for them to show up, to want to show yeah. up, to be motivated to show yeah. up. <laughs> we can't, we can't blame the voters. Uh, and I think it's not exactly good practice to blame people you want to show up for you for not showing <laughs> up. Um, you know, no wonder they stay home, but you know, people are not seeing their lives get better. Um, and that makes them stay home. I think for the first time, in years, really, you know, I mean, the pandemic brought out a lot of societal issues, um, really to the forefront, and we could see them clear as day. And you could genuinely see your life get better after you voted for Biden. And like, the coronavirus has turned around so quickly, because we actually have responsible public servants managing the crisis. That's, you know, my work really comes down to that's what I'm trying to do. We need responsible people serving. And if you don't want to do that work, if you want to make money, if you want a profit, then do something else because there's so much work to be done for so many people who are just trying to get by and we need to help them out. And, and so this brings up maybe my last question. <laughs> I'm sure Casey might have more questions. My last question, which is, you know, we, we tend to place a lot of blame on disengaged youth, right? But I think your story, the story of many of the other people we've had on the podcast is that a lot of youth are very engaged. They might be engaged in different ways, ways that we don't often amplify or look at. But what do you recommend to current college students, you know, that, that want to get involved? Yeah, this is a great question because I I live in this, you know, in-between existence of like Gen Z that's very online and and digital. And like, I just have to say like boomer because a lot of the work that I do is with boomers. And so, you know, it's all telephone and uh, like it's just a very different way of communicating. So 
I always push back on the narrative that young folks aren't organizing because they are and they're doing it every day. And I did it naturally. I mean, I wasn't thinking about, you know, when I was their age, I wasn't, I'd just been raped. I wasn't thinking about my county commissioner. I was thinking about my safety. So as a college student, you know, like you can join a campaign if you want to, but the best, you know, starting place is really to just do what you're passionate about. And it could even be like women in STEM or something because your existence is important in those places. You know, you don't have to follow this like scripted narrative. I think in the political science department, everyone thinks they need to like intern for someone for some position that they don't know. Like what is a county commissioner even? Um, I think I learned what they do when I was 23. So, uh, you know, yeah when you're in your undergrad, you have to do what's good for you. And you, you're already, you might have a job. You know, I had two jobs. It was, a lot of us have jobs. <laughs> That's how you, like education's just so expensive. And then you have the classes. You have to actually, you know, do the thing you're there for. And we're also told to make time for our social life, you know, to make time for your family. You have to invent all of this time in 24 hours that doesn't exist. So you shouldn't spend it on the things um, that don't bring you joy. And my best advice is to start maybe by, you know, you could look at a list of clubs, but it doesn't even have to be a club. Like just hang out with friends, people who are like-minded and like have deep conversations and really reflect on politics and get involved. I mean, just care about the issues. Um, I really do think that everything is political because a lot of things come down to equity issues and there's just always work to be done. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be serious when we're doing this work. So you can you can enter the space by making it fun. You can do like entry level things like canvassing um, that just, you know, gives you a, a entry into the, the work and you can see if you like it and if you don't leave it. I, I really needed that, you know, advice when I was in my undergrad and to say no more because I think as you enter political spaces, everyone I don't want to say we'll take advantage of you, but they will they will latch onto this new person who's energized and enthusiastic and wants to do work, and you'll be expected to do everything. Um, and if you're like me, you think you're Wonder Woman and you can do it, and you can't. <laughs> and it's not good for your mental health if you do that. So I, I think, you know, do do the online organizing that young folks are probably already doing, but but translate some of that digital organizing into voting because that's the next that's the next space for us. We need to vote and we need to run for office, and that doesn't mean you just run for office out of college and don't have any experience. It's like go get some experience, go learn something, and bring something valuable to the table, but. Um, you just can't do it if you're not out there. And so you got to get out there somewhere. And I I think there's not a good way to do it either. You know, there's so many different avenues and this work is really just about who, you know, so find one person who you trust, who can give you calls and just keep calling people and networking and learning who else to call. That's what I did. I mean, I don't have time to learn the game and learn the web, but just tell me who to know <laughs> and like, let's get stuff done. So I'll ask this last question and it, I guess I had one more question. 
And I, you probably kind of captured it with the last statement you made, but like, are there any, based on our conversation, any nuggets you want listeners to walk, like to, 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 to leave with words of wisdom? Yeah. So my first, my, so the, the best word of wisdom that I, I kind of alluded to was learning to say no. I think um, someone said, you know, something along the lines of this to me for every no, there should be like, or for every yes, there should be a thousand no's. Cause I just try to do everything. Um, you know, I see work not being done and I'm like, well, guess I'm doing it. And it's <laughs> not healthy. And I think that's, you know, really in, in college, we're ingrained to do work all the time and there's not a lot of rest. I mean, if you're, if you're working hard and organizing, you know, there are plenty of people who just have fun, but if, if you're really passionate about getting into this work, it's also important you take care of yourself while doing this work. Um, it took me too long to realize that. And I'm, I'm really still taking care of my mental health. Um, it's a long journey. Um, but like this, this stuff is deep and these issues like are issues that could keep you up at night. So it's really important to like compartmentalize where you need to. Um, I think my other nugget would be, and I, I did mention this, but you know, it really is who, you know, I've gotten every opportunity I have by someone who I know, not because I had the best resume, which I did, or did the most things, which I did, or graduated summa cum laude, which I did. <laughs> like, I, you know, I went out there and worked hard and, like, showed it. And that's, you know, why I'm working for the top finance firm in the state and Senator Sherrod Brown. You know, I think, I think you have to prove yourself in a way that a, a paper won't let you. And that real life experience, like a piece of paper just won't let you, um, you know, show what you can do in, in real life. I mean, this really politics does not even need a college degree. I mean, <laughs> to do the work that, you know, the work that I'm doing probably does, but there's a lot of organizing that really doesn't. And we need organizers who don't have degrees. So I would also say to young folks who feel like pressured into college and, you know, we're forced to go down that route, but are still in the, you know, beginning thinking about things. Um, like I am in so much college debt that I, I do think it's important to evaluate, like, are you going to do a career that will pay this back? And that's not advice that you're getting from adults, frankly, because their college was just so cheap <laughs> um, or cheaper. And so it's, it's a bit different when you're really going through it because, you know, the work of keeping democracy together is not lucrative. <laughs> um, it is public service. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Maddie, for even delivering some hard truths. We appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed coming on. Hey, everyone. My name is Jenna Spinelli, and I host and produce a podcast called Democracy Works. It's a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. If you enjoy this podcast, I think you'll like our show, too. 
Every episode examines a different aspect of what it means to live in a democracy. Sometimes it's big picture issues like neoliberalism or demagoguery, and other times it's more on the ground topics like ranked choice voting and how local news deserts are democracy deserts too. Some of our previous guests include Jonathan Haidt, Andrew Sullivan, and even Wynton Marsalis. So I hope you'll check out Democracy Works. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and with me as always is my co-host, Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is produced by David Yursa and edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio. Our podcast is supported by our Patreon patrons. If you want to support the show, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, swag, featuring designs by donuts and coffee, then head on over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about political and civic engagement.